Section 58 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1 by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 3, Part 5. Christophe was soothed by his day and restored to confidence in himself by the affection that he had left behind him so he returned home. When he had gone as far as his ticket would take him, he got out blithely and took to the road on foot. He had sixty kilometers to do. He was in no hurry and dawdled like a schoolboy. It was April. The country was not very far on. The leaves were unfolding like little wrinkled hands at the ends of the hack branches. The apple trees were in flower, and along the hedges the frail eglantine smiled. Above the leafless forest, where a soft greenish down was beginning to appear, on the summit of a little hill, like a trophy on the end of a lance, there rose an old romantic castle. Three black clouds sailed across the soft blue sky. Shadows chased over the country in spring. Showers passed. Then the bright sun shone forth again and the birds sang. Christophe found that for some time he had been thinking of Uncle Gottfried. He had not thought of the poor man for a long time, and he wondered why the memory of him should so obstinately obsess him now. He was haunted by it as he walked along a path along a canal that reflected the poplars, and the image of his uncle was so actual that as he turned a great wall he thought he saw him coming towards him. The sky grew dark, a heavy downpour of rain and hail fell, and thunder rumbled in the distance. Christophe was near a village. He could see its pink walls and red roofs among the clumps of trees. He hurried and took shelter under the projecting roof of the nearest house. The hailstones came lashing down. They rang out on the tiles and fell down into the street like pieces of lead. The ruts were overflowing. Above the blossoming orchards a rainbow flung its brilliant garish scarf over the dark blue clouds. On the threshold a girl was standing knitting. She asked Christophe to enter. He accepted the invitation. The room into which he stepped was used as a kitchen, a dining room, and a bedroom. At the back a stew-pot hung over a great fire. A peasant woman who was cleaning vegetables wished Christophe good day, and bade him go near the fire to dry himself. The girl fetched a bottle of wine and gave him to drink. She sat on the other side of the table and went on knitting, while at the same time she looked after two children who were playing at testing each other's eyes with those grasses which are known in the country as thieves or sweeps. She began to talk to Christophe. It was only after a moment that he saw that she was blind. She was not pretty. She was a big girl with red cheeks, white teeth, and strong arms, but her features were irregular. She had the smiling, rather expressionless air of many blind people, and also their mania for talking of things and people as though they could see them. At first Christophe was startled and wondered if she were making fun of him when she said that he looked well and that the country was looking very pretty. But after looking from the blind girl to the woman who was cleaning the vegetables, he saw that nobody was surprised and that it was no joke. There was nothing to joke about indeed. The two women asked Christophe friendly questions as to whither he was going and whence he had come. The blind girl joined in the conversation with a rather exaggerated eagerness. She agreed with, or commented on, Christophe's remarks about the road and the fields. 
Naturally, her observations were often wide of the mark. She seemed to be trying to pretend that she could see as well as he. Other members of the family came in, a healthy peasant of thirty and his young wife. Christophe talked to them all and watched the clearing sky, waiting for the moment to set out again. The blind girl hummed an air while she plied her knitting needles. The air brought back all sorts of old memories to Christophe. "'What?' he said. "'You know that?' Gottfried had taught her it. He hummed the following notes. The girl began to laugh. She sang the first half of the phrases, and he finished them. He had just got up to go and look at the weather, and he was walking round the room, mechanically taking stock of every corner of it. When near the dresser, he saw an object which made him start. It was a long, twisted stick, the handle of which was roughly carved to represent a little bent man bowing. Christophe knew it well. He had played with it as a child. He pounced on the stick and asked in a choking voice, "'Where did you get this? Where did you get it?' The man looked up and said, "'A friend left it here, an old friend who is dead.' Christophe cried, "'Gottfried?' They all turned and asked, "'How do you know?' And when Christophe told them that Gottfried was his uncle, they were all greatly excited. The blind girl got up. Her ball of wool rolled across the room. She stopped her work and took Christophe's hands and said in a great state of emotion, "'You are his nephew?' They all talked at once. Christophe asked, "'But how? How do you come to know him?' The man replied, "'It was here that he died.' They sat down again, and when the excitement had gone down a little, the mother told, as she went on with her work, that Gottfried used to go to the house for many years. He always used to stay there on his way to and fro from his journeys. The last time he came, it was in last July, he seemed very tired, and when he took off his pack it was some time before he could speak a word, but they did not take any notice of it because they were used to seeing him like that when he arrived and knew that he was short of breath. He did not complain, either. He never used to complain. He always used to find some happiness in the most unpleasant things. When he was doing some exhausting work, he used to be glad, thinking how good it would be in bed at night. And when he was ill, he used to say how good it would be when he was not ill any longer. "'And, sir, it is wrong to be always content,' added the woman. "'For if you are not sorry for yourself, nobody will pity you. I always complain.' Well, nobody had paid any attention to him. They had even chaffed him about looking so well, and Modesta, that was the blind girl's name, who had just relieved him of his pack, had asked him if he was never going to be tired of running like a young man. He smiled in reply, for he could not speak. He sat on the seat by the door. Everybody went about their work, the men to the fields, the woman to her cooking. Modesta went near the seat. She stood leaning against the door with her knitting in her hands and talked to Gottfried. He did not reply. She did not ask him for any reply and told him everything that had happened since his last visit. He breathed with difficulty, and she heard him trying hard to speak. Instead of being anxious about him, she said, "'Don't speak. Just rest. You shall talk presently. How can people tire themselves out like that?' And then he did not talk or even try to talk. She went on with her story, thinking that he was listening. He sighed and said nothing. When the mother came a little later, she found Modesta still talking and Gottfried motionless on the seat with his head flung back facing the sky. For some minutes Modesta had been talking to a dead man. She understood then that the poor man had been trying to say a few words before he died, but had not been able to. 
Then, with his sad smile, he had accepted that, and had closed his eyes in the peace of the summer evening. The rain had ceased. The daughter-in-law went to the stables. The son took his mattock and cleared the little gutter in front of the door which the mud had obstructed. Modesta had disappeared at the beginning of the story. Christophe was left alone in the room with the mother, and was silent and much moved. The old woman, who was rather talkative, could not bear a prolonged silence, and she began to tell him the whole history of her acquaintance with Gottfried. It went far back. When she was quite young, Gottfried loved her. He dared not tell her, but it became a joke. She made fun of him. Everybody made fun of him. It was the custom wherever he went. Gottfried used to come faithfully every year. It seemed natural to him that people should make fun of him, natural that she should have married and been happy with another man. She had been too happy. She had boasted too much of her happiness. Then unhappiness came. Her husband died suddenly. Then his daughter, a fine, strong girl whom everybody admired, who was to be married to the son of the richest farmer of the district, lost her sight as the result of an accident. One day, when she had climbed to the great pear-tree behind the house to pick the fruit, the ladder slipped. As she fell, a broken branch struck a blow near the eye. At first it was thought that she would escape with a scar, but later she had had unceasing pains in her forehead. One eye lost its sight, then the other, and all their remedies had been useless. Of course the marriage was broken off, her betrothed had vanished without any explanation, and of all the young men who a month before had actually fought for a dance with her, not one had the courage, it is quite comprehensible, to take a blind girl to his arms. And so Modesta, who till then had been careless and gay, had fallen into such despair that she wanted to die. She refused to eat. She did nothing but weep from morning to evening, and during the night they used to hear her still moaning in her bed. They did not know what to do. They could only join her in her despair, and she only wept the more. At last they lost patience with her moaning. Then they scolded her, and she talked of throwing herself into the canal. The minister would come sometimes. He would talk of the good God and eternal things, and the merit she was gaining for the next world by bearing her sorrows. But that did not console her at all. One day Gottfried came. Modesta had never been very kind to him. Not that she was naturally unkind, but she was disdainful, and besides, she never thought. She loved to laugh, and there was no malice in what she said or did to him. When he heard of her misfortune, he was as overwhelmed by it as though he were a member of the family. However, he did not let her see it the first time he saw her. He went and sat by her side, made no allusion to her accident, and began to talk quietly, as he had always done before. He had no word of pity for her. He even seemed not to notice that she was blind. Only he never talked to her of things she could not see. He talked to her about what she could hear or notice in her blindness, and he did it quite simply, as though it were a natural thing. It was as though he too were blind. At first she did not listen and went on weeping, but next day she listened better and even talked to him a little. "'And,' the woman went on, "'I do not know what he can have said to her, for we were haymaking, and I was too busy to notice her. But in the evening, when we came in from the fields, we found her talking quietly, and after that she went on getting better. She seemed to forget her affliction, but every now and then she would think of it again. 
She would weep alone or try to talk to Gottfried of sad things, but he seemed not to hear, or he would not reply in the same tone. He would go on talking gravely or merrily of things which soothed and interested her. At last he persuaded her to go out of the house, which she had never left since her accident. He made her go a few yards round the garden at first, and then for a longer distance in the fields, and at last she learned to find her way everywhere and to make out everything as though she could see. She even notices things to which we never pay any attention, and she is interested in everything, whereas before she was never interested in much outside herself. That time Gottfried stayed with us longer than usual. We dared not ask him to postpone his departure, but he stayed of his own accord until he saw that she was calmer, and one day she was out there in the yard. I heard her laughing. I cannot tell you what an effect that had on me. Gottfried looked happy, too. He was sitting near me. We looked at each other, and I am not ashamed to tell you, sir, that I kissed him with all my heart. Then he said to me, Now I think I can go. I am not needed any more. I tried to keep him, but he said, No, I must go now. I cannot stay any longer. Everybody knew that he was like the wandering Jew. He could not stay anywhere. We did not insist. Then he went, but he arranged to come here more often, and every time it was a great joy for Modesta. She was always better after his visits. She began to work in the house again. Her brother married. She looks after the children, and now she never complains and always looks happy. I sometimes wonder if she would be so happy if she had her two eyes. Yes, indeed, sir, there are days when I think that it would be better to be like her and not to see certain ugly people and certain evil things. The world is growing very ugly. It grows worse every day, and yet I should be very much afraid of God taking me at my word, and for my part I would rather go on seeing the world, ugly as it is. Modesta came back, and the conversation changed. Christophe wished to go now that the weather was fair again, but they would not let him. He had to agree to stay to supper and to spend the night with them. Modesta sat near Christophe and did not leave him all the evening. He would have liked to talk intimately to the girl whose lot filled him with pity, but she gave him no opportunity. She would only try to ask him about Gottfried. When Christophe told her certain things she did not know, she was happy and a little jealous. She was a little unwilling to talk of Gottfried herself. It was apparent that she did not tell everything, and when she did tell everything she was sorry for it at once. Her memories were her property. She did not like sharing them with another. In her affection she was as eager as a peasant woman in her attachment to her land. It hurt her to think that anybody could love Gottfried as much as she. It is true that she refused to believe it, and Christophe, understanding, left her that satisfaction. As he listened to her, he saw that, although she had seen Gottfried, and had even seen him with indulgent eyes, since her blindness she had made of him an image absolutely different from the reality, and she had transferred to the phantom of her mind all the hunger for love that was in her. Nothing had disturbed her illusion, with the bold certainty of the blind, who calmly invent what they do not know, she said to Christophe, "'You are like him.' He understood that for years she had grown used to living in a house with closed shutters through which the truth could not enter, and now that she had learned to see in the darkness that surrounded her, and even to forget the darkness, perhaps she would have been afraid of a ray of light filtering through the gloom. 
With Christophe, she recalled a number of rather silly trivialities in a smiling and disjointed conversation in which Christophe could not be at his ease. He was irritated by her chatter. He could not understand how a creature who had suffered so much had not become more serious in her suffering, and he could not find tolerance for such futility. Every now and then he tried to talk of graver things, but they found no echo. Modesta could not, or would not, follow him. They went to bed. It was long before Christophe could sleep. He was thinking of Gottfried and trying to disengage him from the image of Modesta's childish memories. He found it difficult and was irritated. His heart ached at the thought that Gottfried had died there and that his body had no doubt lain in that very bed. He tried to live through the agony of his last moments, when he could neither speak nor make the blind girl understand, and had closed his eyes in death. He longed to have been able to raise his eyelids and to read the thoughts hidden under them, the mystery of that soul, which had gone without making itself known, perhaps even without knowing itself. It never tried to know itself, and all its wisdom lay in not desiring wisdom, or in not trying to impose its will on circumstance, but in abandoning itself to the force of circumstance, in accepting it and loving it. So he assimilated the mysterious essence of the world without even thinking of it. And if he had done so much good to the blind girl, to Christophe, and doubtless to many others who would be forever unknown, it was because, instead of bringing the customary words of the revolt of man against nature, he brought something of the indifferent peace of nature, and reconciled the submissive soul with her. He did good like the fields, the woods, all nature with which he was impregnated. Christophe remembered the evenings he had spent with Gottfried in the country, his walks as a child, the stories and songs in the night. He remembered also the last walk he had taken with his uncle on the hill above the town on a cold winter's morning, and the tears came to his eyes once more. He did not try to sleep, so as to remain with his memories. He did not wish to lose one moment of that night in the little place, filled with the soul of Gottfried, to which he had been led as though impelled by some unknown force. But while he lay listening to the irregular trickling of the fountain and the shrill cries of the bats, the healthy fatigue of youth mastered his will, and he fell asleep. When he awoke the sun was shining. Everybody on the farm was already at work. In the hall he found only the old woman and the children. The young couple were in the fields, and Modesta had gone to milk. They looked for her in vain. She was nowhere to be found. Christophe said he would not wait for her return. He did not much want to see her, and he said that he was in a hurry. He set out after telling the old woman to bid the others good-bye for him. As he was leaving the village at a turn of the road, he saw the blind girl sitting on a bank under a hawthorn hedge. She got up as she heard him coming, approached him smiling, took his hand, and said, Come. They climbed up through meadows to a little shady flowering field filled with tombstones, which looked down on the village. She led him to a grave and said, He is there. They both knelt down. Christophe remembered another grave by which he had knelt with Gottfried, and he thought, Soon it will be my turn. But there was no sadness in his thought. A great peace was ascending from the earth. Christophe leaned over the grave and said in a whisper to Gottfried, Enter into me. Modesta was praying, with her hands clasped and her lips moving in silence. Then she went round the grave on her knees, feeling the ground and the grass and the flowers with her hands. She seemed to caress them, 
her quick fingers seemed to see. They gently plucked the dead stalks of the ivy and the faded violets. She laid her hand on the curb to get up. Christophe saw her fingers pass furtively over Godfrey's name, lightly touching each letter. She said, The earth is sweet this morning. She held out her hand to him. He gave her his. She made him touch the moist, warm earth. He did not loose her hand. Their locked fingers plunged into the earth. He kissed Modesta. She kissed him, too. They both rose to their feet. She held out to him a few fresh violets she had gathered and put the faded ones into her bosom. They dusted their knees and left the cemetery without a word. In the fields the larks were singing. White butterflies danced about their heads. They sat down in a meadow a few yards away from each other. The smoke of the village was ascending direct to the sky that was washed by the rain. The still canal glimmered between the poplars. A gleaming blue mist wrapped the meadows and woods in its folds. Modesta broke the silence. She spoke in a whisper of the beauty of the day as though she could see it. She drank in the air through her half-open lips. She listened for the sounds of creatures and things. Christophe also knew the worth of such music. He said what she was thinking and could not have said. He named certain of the cries and imperceptible tremors that they could hear in the grass, in the depths of the air. She said, "'Ah, you see that too?' He replied that Gottfried had taught him to distinguish them. "'You too?' she said a little crossly. He wanted to say to her, "'Do not be jealous.' But he saw the divine light smiling all about them. He looked at her blind eyes and was filled with pity. "'So?' he asked. "'It was Gottfried taught you?' She said, "'Yes,' and that they gave her more delight than ever before. She did not say before what. She never mentioned the words eyes or blind. They were silent for a moment. Christophe looked at her in pity. She felt that he was looking at her. He would have liked to tell her how much he pitied her. He would have liked her to complain, to confide in him. He asked kindly, "'You have been very unhappy?' She sat dumb and unyielding. She plucked the blades of grass and munched them in silence. After a few moments, the song of a lark was going farther and farther from them in the sky. Christophe told her how he too had been unhappy, and how Gottfried had helped him. He told her all his sorrows, his trials, as though he were thinking aloud or talking to a sister. The blind girl's face lit up as he told his story, which she followed eagerly. Christophe watched her and saw that she was on the point of speaking. She made a movement to come near him and hold his hand. He moved, too, but already she had relapsed into her impassiveness, and when he had finished she only replied with a few banal words. Behind her broad forehead, on which there was not a line, there was the obstinacy of a peasant, hard as a stone. She said that she must go home to look after her brother's children. She talked of them with a calm smile. He asked her, "'You are happy?' She seemed to be more happy to hear him say the word. She said she was happy and insisted on the reasons she had for being so. She was trying to persuade herself and him that it was so. She spoke of the children and the house and all that she had to do. "'Oh, yes,' she said. "'I am very happy.' Christophe did not reply. She rose to go. He rose, too. They said good-bye gaily and carelessly. 
Modesta's hand trembled a little in Christophe's. She said, "'You will have fine weather for your walk today.' And she told him of a crossroads where he must not go wrong. It was as though, of the two, Christophe were the blind one. They parted. He went down the hill. When he reached the bottom, he turned. She was standing at the summit in the same place. She waved her handkerchief and made signs to him, as though she saw him. There was something heroic and absurd in her obstinacy in denying her misfortune, something which touched Christophe and hurt him. He felt how worthy Modesta was of pity and even of admiration, and he could not have lived two days with her. As he went his way between flowering hedges, he thought of dear old Schultz and his old eyes, bright and tender, before which so many sorrows had passed which they refused to see, for they would not see hurtful realities. How does he see me, I wonder, thought Christophe. I am so different from his idea of me. To him I am what he wants me to be. Everything is in his own image, pure and noble like himself. He could not bear life if he saw it as it is. And he thought of the girl living in darkness who denied the darkness and tried to pretend that what was was not and that what was not was. Then he saw the greatness of German idealism which he had so often loathed because in vulgar souls it is a source of hypocrisy and stupidity he saw the beauty of the faith which begets a world within the world different from the world like a little island in the ocean but he could not bear such a faith for himself and refused to take refuge upon such an island of the dead life truth he would not be a lying hero Perhaps that optimistic lie which a German emperor tried to make law for all his people was indeed necessary for weak creatures if they were to live, and Christophe would have thought it a crime to snatch from such poor wretches the illusion which upheld them. But for himself he never could have recourse to such subterfuges. He would rather die than live by illusion. Was not art also an illusion? No, it must not be. Truth truth. Eyes wide open, let him draw in through every pore the all-puissant breath of life, see things as they are, squarely face his misfortunes, and laugh. End of section 58